I strongly want, uh, you know, my engineering group to be a place where people come uh, to develop, right? Uh, not just code, but themselves. Welcome to the Big Time Podcast, where we have honest conversations with industry professionals who have advice that's right for you. In this edition of the Big Time Podcast, we talk with Harrison Green Fishback, CTO of Lineate. In a world where software development services have become a standard commodity, Harrison believes Lineate owes their success to a commitment to the highest quality. Harrison sat down with us to discuss how he makes it happen, as well as his deep insights on how to run a solid team. Welcome. I'm your host, Alexander, and I'm excited today to be joined by my guest, Harrison Green Fishback, who's based in Portland, Oregon, and he's the CTO of Lineate. Good to have you on, Harrison. Hey, now, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So how we understand, just to kind of lay the, the foundation, when did uh, Lineate begin and when did you join on and just how did it be? How did it start? Sure. Um, so Lineate uh, began about 18 years ago. Uh, I've been here uh, for five. Uh, it was founded by two partners. Uh, our CEO, Ben Engber, uh, and our uh, president of European operations, uh, Dmitry Paskevich. Uh, ben, at the time, uh, was a freelance software developer, uh, and he needed uh, some additional help. Uh, he wound up uh, working with a gentleman um, in, uh, in Russia uh, to, to outsource a bit of his, uh, his work, uh, was really, truly impressed by the, the quality of the work that he got, and uh, you know, asked to continue that relationship um, the gentleman in question said, "Hey, no, I'm a, I'm a university professor, and this was really just a side gig for some extra, um, you know, extra extra holiday money. Uh, but, but I've got this great former student. Uh, you should really talk to. Uh, that's that's Dimitri. Uh, they formed a partnership, uh, and in fact, that university professor now works for us. He's one of our uh, um, you know senior engineers, uh, architects, and uh, runs our internal uh, our internal software engineering school. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's been a success for the three of them over the course of about 18 years." Uh, I mentioned I joined about five years ago as a solution architect uh, and became uh, the CTO here uh, about a year and a half ago. Now, now you paint a very rosy picture that, you know, these two guys met, the things are good and everything's great. You know your core focus. People are just running to you. Mm -hmm. Help me understand maybe the more the reality to that and, and how have you been able to grow and overcome? Um, if you talked to me 10 years ago when I was a software engineer uh, full time, I would have said, wow, I totally want to go work on some of those cool new, new, new NoSQL things, right? That, that sounds fascinating. That's interesting. I've not seen it before. Um, and that was true for a lot of software engineers at the time. Uh, nowadays, it's a pretty standard thing to see on somebody's resume, right? So again, it's kind of come commodity. We're still very good at it, right? We've done a lot of it. We have a lot of experience uh, using those tools to solve problems uh, across a, a wide variety of domains. Um, but it's not a differentiating factor at this point. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, more recently, uh, we've taken a look at, um, you know, cloud hosting, cloud services and said, hey, you know, uh, some of the new serverless aspects of uh, those offerings are very, very interesting, uh, really allow for a significant reduction uh, in infrastructure and maintenance. I'll use the word overhead rather than cost, because it really is the overhead of, of humans interacting with them and maintaining things. Um, so we're, we're focusing heavily on that at this juncture. Uh, and also, um, uh, you know, a cool thing that's not necessarily new, but it's uh, newish and it's certainly becoming more in demand. Uh, GraphQL as a, um, an API layer, uh, as a, um, you know, a data, um, data transport tool, um, as opposed to uh, REST, which is, you know, in common use at this point. 
Uh, we see a lot of advantages there. Um, we're also seeing a lot of interest in the market there. And so are making a point to become expert uh, in that. For, for you uh, as a leader, how has your role changed um, since you began? <laughs> I remember when I first joined uh, Lineate, uh, prior to, to, to joining the company, I'd been a, a very happy uh, senior software engineer uh, building small compilers for the last three or four years. Um, really, really fun code. Um, and I was actually the youngest person in the room uh, at that company, right? And so um, I joined Lineate as a solution architect. Uh, I had led teams in the past, but all of a sudden I had a, a team, I think, of about 15 uh, right off the bat. Uh, and my first project within about a month of joining the company. And um, I was super excited. I suddenly discovered I was the oldest person in the room, which was new. Um, and uh, got on the phone with my team and was introducing myself. And I said something dumb off the top of my head. I don't remember what it was. I was just, oh, I've got this idea, right? And um, two days later, I get a message from the team lead. And he said, okay, we built that, right? And I had inadvertently had uh, a group of it, about seven or eight people go do like a couple full days worth of work um, just based off of something that I said off the top of my head, right? Because they wanted to impress. I was, I was their new, you know, new solution architect, right? Um, and so I, I said, oh my God, that's, that's terrifying, right? And, uh, and, and learned to, to be uh, more measured with my words when talking to folks who uh, very much want to go do uh, you know, what I want uh, because it's part of their job and they want to succeed at their job and they you know, want to impress the boss. Um, you know, that's, that's double or triply true uh, now that I'm in a role uh, you know, as an executive, right? I, I really need to think about what it is um, that I'm saying uh, because um, you know, employees want to do what their boss wants. That's pretty normal and it's great, right? Uh, you know, they want to, to do what, what leadership is, is aiming them towards, but you have to be careful what you're aiming because if you, if, you, if you haphazardly uh, shoot for something, uh, boy, they'll go do it. And it's your fault, not theirs, that uh, mm -hmm. that time gets wasted or improperly spent. Moving into a world where it's getting much smaller, and, and there, I think firms across uh, the globe are going to be hiring folks more and more all over the place. So, what would mm -hmm. you say are some of the the thing, the learnings that you've had, or, or tactics that have worked to keep teams working well together when you're in different cultures and time zones? Um, there's a wonderful book, uh, and I cannot remember the name of the author off the top of my head. I wish I could. Uh, but the, the title of the book is called Culture Map or The Culture Map. Uh, and so if, if you know, your watchers or listeners uh, are, are interested, I highly recommend that book. Um, it's fabulous. It's an easy read. And it, it, it does uh, business case studies, um, cross-cultural business case studies. You know, what can you expect if you've got an American and a Norwegian, right? What, what problems are you going to run into? And it actually classifies cultures into, I think, one of, um, you know, three different uh, sort of categories, right? Um, high context, uh, um, sort of medium level context and low context. And high context cultures assume that um, you and I, because we're in the same culture, share a really significant amount of context, right? And so uh, a very simple phrase uh, or even just body language and gesture carries a lot of information, right? Um, so now imagine that you have two different high context cultures, right? 
Well, two people from two different high context cultures are going to communicate as though they are high context because that's natural for them, right? But the context isn't the same. And so there's a lot of miscommunication that takes place. Um, low context cultures assume that we don't tend to have that shared background, that shared understanding. And so we explain stuff a lot more. Uh, in this book, I remember um, America was actually ranked as a very low context culture, which makes sense when you think about all of the immigration that has taken place over the years, right? And all of the different people who have had to learn to communicate with each other uh, without shared context. Um, and so really fascinating book. What would you say um, has been one of the most important hires that you've made uh, recently? Recently, um, I was fortunate enough uh, to, to meet a guy uh, in Colorado. His name's Brandon Cass. Uh, he's uh, a native English speaker, uh, born, I believe, in Kansas, now lives in Colorado. Uh, very talented software engineer uh, who happens to have a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in Russian and Slavic languages. Speaks beautiful Russian. Uh, I won't say my Russian's beautiful, but I'm also pretty fluent. Uh, and so being able to hire someone um, here in the States who uh, understands at a native level what it means to you know, do business and, and sell things and provide services uh, is huge because that's something that we often have to teach to the folks we bring over. Um, but then somebody who also uh, can interact with our engineering teams in their native language, and more importantly, has a lot of experience working with their culture, um, has just been incredibly impactful. How do you keep good communication, both with yourself, with your team, uh, as it continues to grow, as well as with the rest of the leadership, especially now as a mm -hmm. VP, that, that everything is in line? Um, so, I mean, we're, we're widely distributed. We have um, three offices in, in Russia, one in Omsk, one in a town called Saratov, uh, on the Volga River, south of Moscow, one in St. Petersburg. Uh, we've got an office in New York. I'm in Portland, Oregon. I mentioned Brandon, our solution architect. He's in Colorado. Uh, we have any number of uh, employees who are remote in Russia. And then certainly in this last year with COVID, everybody's been remote. Um, and so there's a balance between um, good frequent communication uh, and meeting fatigue, right? Um, and the ability to get, you know, I'll call it real work done. Although by the time you're you know, by the time you're up in executive management, um, your real work is often uh, mostly meetings, right? Um, so, you know, how do we keep the communication good? Uh, we always try and make sure that, um, you know, only the people who are truly necessary are invited to a meeting. Uh, we try and, and uh, keep our meetings short. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're firm believers in agile software development, uh, in particularly agile scrum. It's an industry standard at this point. It's been around for decades. Uh, and that calls for a, a short daily standup, right? And but short is What's an short word there. Short for a standup, uh, a team of, you know, five or six developers, uh, no more than fifteen minutes. And when you got five or six people talking to each other, it very, very easily becomes an hour long conversation, right? Um, so we we try and limit the the size and the length of our meetings. Uh, we try and keep meetings focused on a single topic. Uh, and then one of the things I think um, that uh, I most enjoy, and uh, you know, I really encourage the you know the management uh, under me to do as well is to um, you know to meet with the people, not just your direct reports, but you know, skip a level, right? Um, and and have a, a regular, maybe monthly meeting, right? Depending on the number of, of people you're meeting with, uh, where where you meet just to check in and say hi and 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 find out how things are going. Uh, of course, you end up talking about about business 
business, but you're not there to tell them what to do. They're not there to escalate stuff to you. Um, you're really just making sure that you're maintaining, um, you know, human water cooler contact, which is uh, something that's incredibly important for an office culture and is something that doesn't uh, easily exist in a very distributed, uh, you know, online workplace. What do you do when the client comes back to you and they're just, they're disagreeing with what you've done and they're just, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're in the wrong, but how do you, how do you handle that situation? Um, you be honest, uh, and, um, you look for, um, you know, a way to solve that problem for your client, right? Um, that's, that's just part of what being a consultant is. It's part of what, uh, you know, being a, being an engineer is right. They're coming at you with problems. Sometimes they're technical. Sometimes they're due to a misunderstanding. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of times when the client's wrong, in fact, you're wrong too, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that the customer is always right. I think that we, we all recognize that that isn't always true. Um, but, um, the fact that you've gotten there means that there's a misunderstanding, right? Mm. Um, and the fact that there's a misunderstanding means that somewhere along the lines, we dropped the ball, um, doing our best job as consultants, right? Our job is to understand what our clients need, right? Mm. So yeah. if we get to a place where there's a misunderstanding, well, we missed a trick along the way. Uh, and then just being very honest and owning up to the fact that we're humans, right? Uh, and then saying, hey, you know what? This isn't exactly what you want. This isn't exactly what you expected. Um, but here's a plan to fix it for you. Whether it's their fault or our fault or um, a, a mutual collection of fault, right? Uh, when you're able to say, yep, we hear you. Uh, that's wrong. You're right. That's wrong, right? Here's a plan to fix it for you. Um, People tend to respond really beautifully to that. They, they want you to solve their problems for them, right? That's why they're hiring you. So we take that approach. So for, for the future and just kind of uh, where you guys are headed next, what do you see as the um, next big challenge that you're going to need to overcome as an organization to keep growing? Size. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy, uh, when you're a room full of people, right. Um, to communicate, to understand what your, what your colleagues are doing. Um, it gets harder when you're a hundred people, right. In, in a single office, it gets a lot harder when you're 300 people, uh, in, in three main offices, plus remote, plus New York, plus various places in, uh, in the United States. Um, you suddenly find yourself in a position where you work for a place uh, with a bunch of people that you've never met before. Right. And that's, uh, that's its own challenge. Um, so, so yeah, in, in a lot of ways, um, lineate is, a, is as a plate is at a place where we are recognizing our current size as something that we need to address in order to set ourselves up for future growth. And one of the ways we're doing that is, um, by looking at ourselves and saying, you know what, um, the right number of people is about 30 or 40, right? That's the number of kids you have in a classroom, maybe a bit less. That's the number of, that's the number of people that most people know, right? I mean, you look at Facebook and you all pretend we have 500 friends, but you totally don't, right? These are, these are the five or 600 people that you've met in your life that you remember, right? Um, but your, your, your group, your group of close friends is half a dozen and your group of extended friends is, 30 or 40. And I think that that's actually something that has been studied. It's sort of a, the, the size of a human group, 
right? And so one of the things that we're looking at now is saying to ourselves, how can we internally organize ourselves um, to create those those groups, those those classroom sized groups of people that um, are very tight knit, right? That know each other really well, uh, and um, that will then facilitate really excellent work for our clients. Because when you're working with a group that you know really well that you like, um, you do better work, right? And so we're trying to, in a way, um, internally scale ourselves down uh, so that we can scale up, if that makes sense. For more info, go to podcasts.bigtime.net and be sure to subscribe to the Big Time Podcast to get notified when our next episode goes live.